Welcome to We're All Gonna Die and Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. This episode is entitled Spiff Wigan is a Bookend. And it's about Spiff Wigan being a bookend as this is our 101st episode of We're All Gonna Die, which is amazing and weird and took a million years to get here. Well, actually 2013 was when we started or 2012, December of 2012 was when. So it only took nine years to get to 101 episodes. But (laughs) our guest for the 101 episode, 101st episode is the guest for our first ever episode. Yeah. Spiff Wigan. Spiff. Ladies and gentlemen, it is great to be here and other. Yeah, I'm I'm in. Ladies, gentlemen, aliens. Let's let's all do it. Yeah. And we explained. So where are you exactly? Because I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm in, a, in my house in Pittsburgh. I am in my van in the driver's seat with uh, with my laptop sitting on the steering wheel. I have one of those little shelf things you stick on your steering wheel. Ah. That's, what, that's what you get when you live out of your van often. Mm-hmm. And I am somewhere west of Macon, Georgia at a Love's truck stop oh i love loves using my hotspot and watching people walk in and out you know with uh getting their coffee or whatever uh yeah loves is sweet it's i like flying j pilot and loves they're all yes. great so i'm just i'm just chilling here in the car checking in with matt yeah i have a love <laughs> cigarette lighter somewhere around here i don't smoke any Ducky. lighters get yes but the yes because i was at loves i was like oh i gotta get this it's merch. <laughs> it's merch. You got to get that merch, baby. I'm <laughs> also. Say I've been to a Loves in Southeast Ohio. <laughs> Speaking of merch, I don't know if you've noticed my hat. Yes, you were. You are wearing a hat, and I like this hat. I bought this hat because I like it, but I also bought it because not many people were wearing this hat. Even though I just came from Disney World with a friend down in Florida, in Orlando, went to Disney World and went to the star wars stuff star wars mm. place, the galaxy's edge rode all the rides had a great time and this is a um a, it's a green hat that is basically it looks like a mao hat or some sort of army private yeah. and it's basically an imperial officer hat from star wars oh okay that's what that is all right and I, just, I just dig it i think i look good in it i'm just gonna hold on to it and i had no one well my friend i was with said hey that looks good on you and I was like, yeah, no one else is wearing this hat either. They're all going for, you know, really recognizable hats. <laughs> I was like, this one just looks good. And and then yesterday at a different truck stop, I uh, was walking around and this kid went by on a bicycle. He had his other friend and they both looked at me and one of them goes, cool hat. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I've made it with the 10 year olds. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's a demographic. That is an untested, un unmarketed to demographic the 10 year old lots lots of people do say that their kids like my songs now i don't know how to take that well you know it have you seen the they might be giants documentary gigantic not the documentary no i just like the band oh there's a there's a lovely documentary about the johns of they might be giant (laughs) And one of the things, so Ira Glass, it was sort of produced in conjunction with Ira Glass. And there's a bunch of places where they keep coming back to Ira Glass. 
Okay. To talk about the band and stuff and Sarah Vowles in it. And so it's like somehow it was like started as an episode of This American Life talking about Dial a Song and then ballooned into. Well, yeah, I've I've listened to that Dial a Song episode. Yes, it ballooned into a documentary. Okay. And one of these Ira Glass says is talking about like the humor in those songs and that there is a particular aesthetic that if you were the right age, they might be Giants Blows Your Mind. Yeah, they did. They do. And I think there is a particular aesthetic and a humor to your songs that is similar, that hits at a certain like, if that part of your brain is still active. That's true. I think you're right about that. I think that's what hopefully the kids are. But the problem, the problem for me is that, so I make these references. I don't reference, they might be giants, but I see what you're talking about, this kind of sense of humor in there. And I dig all that. And I like those. However, my songs also have these sexual references. And that always makes me nervous. Now they're like, your kid loves the song because it's Kind of funny, and I'm like, tell them not to listen to line number five because that line number five. I think, but you think like that, War, oh, you know, Warner Brothers, the Looney Tunes. Yeah. How many things, I mean, aside from like the weird racist stuff, but how many That's- things did you like as an adult go, shit? <laughs> I mean, for me, like, I remember when I watched March of the Penguins sitting there in the theater, and there's the penguin sex scene. they're they're on the one is looking down at the other one and it's a super tightly cropped shot i just thought to myself is like and there were kids in the theater and i was like in 10 years yeah they're gonna grow up and go to college and probably have some experiences yeah and they're just gonna then next day be driving their car or something and they're gonna realize like that shot that particular (laughs) shot in that moment yeah, of March of the Penguins was, <laughs> and it's fine. I mean, I think there's there's always that stuff in children's entertainment, as there should be. As you know, we, because yeah. I mean, there's just these parts and elements of life that maybe yeah, you figure it out later. Yeah, but you are aware that it is there, but you don't understand it, and then you become a grown up. I mean, for me, yeah. I always think of like I don't know if you've ever seen the Dr. Seuss film, The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T. No, I've never actually seen it. No, see that movie. Is it good? It I'll put is it on a, the same that Dali movie we were talking about. Yes, it's, that's, it's a very on. similar time period, and it is for a children's movie. There are parts of it that are so dark. <laughs> And that really do like there's evil in the world and there's bad shit out there and it just it's presented and like culture should be about that yeah and having that conversation and opening those doors and so it's okay kids like it and they won't get it and then (laughs) then they'll just be walking the one day after they become adults and and you know experience adult think oh damn that all this time was about it's <laughs> it's like you're planning a grenade with a very long fuse you're planning a thought grenade with a very long like a decade long fuse oh long fuse is a good it's a good name for like a project of some sort yes song or song or album or something long fuse long fuse post that sounds suggestive everything sounds suggestive everything is i mean that's the other thing about people and like (laughs) especially repressed people you know they think about it a lot yeah 
and they think yeah. about things a lot and they find stuff, you know, for me, someone who lives a very secular life, you know, who just has gotten over a lot of the Christian guilt that yeah. I grew up with, just they find sex in drugs and everything. Yeah. Those are the ones who are like, I didn't think of that as a reference, but I guess. Yes. If all you think about is sex and drugs, then sure. <laughs> yeah. It's always, I, it's, fun when, <clears throat> it's always fun when that happens in a student essay. <laughs> when, when they're seeing something where you're like, oh, I wasn't. I don't think that original reference was to sex and drugs, but sure, I guess. Yeah. I've, I, you know, I found um, in releasing the, the Patreon songs I've been releasing, they're, they're like, it's a platform for me to try new things. And when I, like last month, I released a song that actually is just about religion and how I kind of think religion is a lot of, a lot of BS, but I don't, but I, I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. I want to, people to listen to the song. Yes. You know, so, so, but I usually do some sort of explaining video for the Patreon yes. member to be like, you know, like if you're curious what this song was about. And that one was really hard. I usually do them real quick. I can just say all the things that I think about them. And that one I recorded over and over again because I would start to say, well, here's what I think about religion. And then I'd go, nope, I'm not gonna, I don't want to talk about that. The song to do the work. And that's hard. And I think it's also, it's like, how do you, uh, you know, it's funny. So one of my other things that I'm doing is I'm now also a book coach, Ooh. which is fun. Like I've write books, helping people write their books. Nice. And uh, I had a zoom meeting this morning actually with someone for whom he's working on something about this incredibly intensely personal, intensely traumatic childhood that he had. Okay. And my friend wants to write reports, not narratives. And so I've been like trying to be like, no, you gotta let people have an experience. Yeah. People have to live this with you and you have to make space for them. Even though it is this intensely personal. Right thing that you're working through a lot of shit that, that you have to leave that that space around you know the neighborhood back when baseball before replay they had the neighborhood call you know <laughs> right, yeah. was the tag there but the ball got there first was his foot really on the base but it was close you know yeah. you gotta have that little bit of gap to let people in hey i think that's why i don't want to for certain songs that are very personal, I, mine, my songs aren't just reports. They're, they're usually, I, I try to make them, they go, they run the gamut, I hope, but they, this one in particular is pretty obvious and yet lots of denseness and imagery yeah. and stuff. So I'm, you know, so I want the song to spark something for people, but I don't want them to be held to my opinion yeah and that's part of what the explaining thing is is like i don't want to explain this to you but it's also i set it up that i that i talk about every song i made so yes. i try to just say so the thing that uh, funny for me for this song in particular just since we're since i've brought it up is that one of the lyrics comes from dune and when, yes <laughs> when, when the, not literally straight from dune but very close to what he said um and i 
like Dune, it's a bit of a slog, but I've committed to reading all six of the original books. Wow. And I'm in book number six now. And in book number five, the lyric I wrote is, is the minds of believers stagnate and fail to grow ever outward. Mm. And so that was my take on religion is like, once you've, once you've locked into something that you, you're like, this is the answer. I kind of feel like you, you stagnate and you lose all of the options that are around you. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, if somebody said, this is the religion I follow, but I'm doing it my way, which I think a lot of people do. That's, that's great. That's one thing. That's one thing. But if you're like, this is the religion I follow. These are all the answers. I stick to it by the book, by this, you know, then I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. That's not. That's not develop. That's not growing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which um, sidebar. So two sidebars. One is the reading list. So I was gifted this book. Um, this life, life. life. Secular faith and spiritual freedom by Martin Hagland. Yes. <laughs> I was gifted this for Christmas. It is wonderful and tremendous. And basically the thesis of the book is that we need to embrace our finite nature and then we all become democratic socialists. <laughs> Basically, um, don't don't worry about heaven. Don't try to go to heaven, or do, you don't actually really want heaven, but you want democratic socialism. And so this book makes it, and he goes and he takes the path of like Saint Augustine, the Abraham and Isaac story in the Bible, Kierkegaard, and C.S. Lewis, and actually ends of all things. On he says Martin Luther King Jr. was the model that we should follow, and it is MLK Day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and his last chapter is about how, like, basically he said, "Yes, heaven, but we need to fix the problems of Earth." Nice. And so there's that, and then the other book you have to read then is the Fragility of Things by William E. Connolly. Okay. Which, when he talks about like this idea, both books are really in their own way are about like is religion as we mostly as most people practice it this way to just kind of deny or transcend the problematic natures of life and the fragility of things starts with this introduction this prelude that's about the earthquake in 1775 in lisbon spain oh wow so lisbon was it was on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1775. Lisbon was the capital of Europe and then kind of the capital of the world. It was the yeah. center of commerce and culture globally. Wow. If you were, if you had your shit together, that's where you were. And on All Saints Day, there was a massive earthquake as people were in church lighting candles. Oh, man. Basically, and they think that it was, they look back, people have looked back, said that it was a possibly like 9.0. It's between 8.5 and 9. It was felt throughout Northern Europe and Northern Africa. Wow. Yeah. And so as the city, and so basically it lasted long enough, and the aftershocks actually lasted several months. That building, basically the entire building, the castle that the king lived in, collapsed 
people ran to the seaside because the buildings are collapsing. Yeah. People <laughs> ran to the seaside to get away from the, the falling stones. And then there was a giant tsunami. I was going to say that's always right. The very next thing. Oh. And so then the giant tsunami chased people back into the city just in time for all of those candles that were lit for All Saints Day to light the city on fire. Oh, my gosh. What an event. Yes. I mean, <laughs> the worst of the worst of the worst on All Saints Day, no less. Yeah. The king of Spain spent the rest of his life living on the royal grounds where the castle was, but in a tent. Oh, my gosh. He never went in a building ever again if he didn't have to. Oh, my gosh. And never wow. slept in a building ever again for the rest of his life. Wow. And how, yeah, that to deny the possibility that everything could go so horribly wrong and people were like, obviously, this was on All Saints Day. Yeah. They said, you know, that maybe the cultural aftershocks lasted a century. I mean, I he said imagine. that, you know, 1775 and 1776 and the French Revolution might have also, if you know, that people thought they had the world figured out in seven, but, uh, on Halloween 1775, people yeah. thought Lisbon, they've got it figured out. They are at the height. They are. And then for the rest of the, the living memory of the people who lived through that, whether they were in Lisbon or somewhere else. There was this incredible culture of doubt and fear and mm -hmm. as this crisis of confidence, yeah. which I think is maybe the perfect two perfect books to read right now. <laughs> yeah, as, it is, that, is, that really makes sense because it, 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 it's hard when things turn over and how you how you grapple with it. Yes. And for me, I. I often live in it. I, the, the thing that I've, it's been a mantra for me since I was very young was just trying to be in the moment and um, not thinking too far down the road and not feeling like I have anything figured out. Those are, those are all, if I, if I'm living not in the moment, if I think I've got things figured out and, uh, and I know where I'm headed, then it doesn't feel like me. Which, you know, I think is what propels you forward. So the other sidebar for that is, you know, thinking about songs and, and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You know, the extreme example, I think, for me is, you know, Elliot Smith. Mm -hmm. When he said he felt it like he figured out what a song meant, he would stop performing it. Interesting. So that for him, he's like, there's no room for the song to grow. I now know what this song's about to me. Yeah. And, you know, I have such a, a place in my heart for Waltz number two XL. And I read in the one of the long pitchfork, you know, celebrations yeah. of his life, what that song was about. And it was like, oh, well, factually, I didn't get it correct. Yeah. But emotionally, I got it correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that 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 for me is like, that's the thing is that, you know, for people, you put something out. Is it emotionally correct? Yeah. And do they identify with it? Right. Which is what, which is where it gets. Get, well, I don't want to say problematic or bad, but where it gets interesting when you're talking about um, things like religion and things like politics, where yes. you're like, how, because 
emotions are important. We establish that we know they're great for art and you know, art is also cultural and therefore politics are cultural and they share that space mm -hmm. in some ways. And so all of that overlap where you're like, ah, I was just thinking this morning about how it's always a good idea for me to at some point go to one of those websites uh, that says, what, what do you think about these issues? And then you go through the, the list and they say, this is probably the candidate you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Whereas you don't start the other way. Yes. Um, and I, fi I find that to be really sometimes just, oh, I, I got it. I, I was what I was thinking, you know, and I'm big picture. I'm pretty accurate in that way. Like, which party am I going with? And yeah, and, but it is sort of surprising sometimes to be like, right. When you look at literally what the issues are, things are different. And I think both of these two books, The Fragility of Things and This Life, also talk yeah. about like what the impulse is to have one right answer. Yeah, it's part of our crisis that a lot of people are in right now is that that one one right answer is maybe no longer the right answer mm. or is not or the grasp that that is not the correct answer for millions of people that you're living in the same country with. And this reminds that, me of the end of Karen uh, Armstrong's book. I think it was the Bible. That was the one I read because she also has one about God that's just called God. But Karen. Um, you know, she's that former nun who has yeah. the, who has the, um, and at the end of the Bible, which was very, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty factual and kind of following at the end of it, what she, her personal afterward was basically like, you can see that the Bible has a long history of interpretation. Yeah. And one of the sort of cautionary things she was saying at the end of that was, possibly because of darwinism there's a there's an increased need to feel like no this is where the answers are this yeah and, and when you start to and she sort of made some dates and some some hypotheses about that but you know when you start to think this is the answer that's when you start seeing trouble and yes. it has a history of being interpreted yeah so it's and like well, many different ways yeah. And being this really schizophrenic book. So the other person then that comes to mind is somebody I'm a huge fan of. And that was, uh, his name is Zygmunt Bauman. Okay. And he's got this book called Modernity and Ambivalence that I read, God, 15 years ago now that changed my life. And the idea that the promise of modernity is that you can fix everything. But then also the promise yeah. of modernity is that you can then take all of the ambivalence out of life. You can have these pure and perfect experiences, right. which in no way is what life is. <laughs> because you've like fixed it. Because, you, because there is this promise that it can all be fixed. Right. And I mean, and he comes to so the book that made his career was modernity in the Holocaust. So he was a Polish Jew born in 1925. Okay. And so he has a sense of what the world was before modernity. Cause it was his childhood. And then, you know, yeah yeah <laughs> september 1st 1939 happened <laughs> um and he was actually he was part of the underground resistance as like a 14 15 year old wow and he got then he got out he got to england and then he came back and then in the 60s he was actually kicked out by the communists again <laughs> and so he lived the rest of his life as this sort of refugee like he had to actually in order for him to leave the country he had to turn over his passport oh my gosh 
And so he was truly, him and his family truly were refugees. And in the 90s, he started realizing that normal ass people with homes and lives and citizenship were actually experiencing what he was experiencing emotionally as a refugee. And that that experience became really normal. Fascinating. And so that he says that, yeah, this part of this fragility of things maybe is that also as much as we, the promise of modernity is that there is one stable right answer and we can fix all the things. But the other thing about modernity is, of course, that then actually everything changes very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and that we, you know, instead of having a time of this is the world, this is how life is set up. These are the rules. He said the trouble of being human these days is not only do you have to figure out how to be a good person under the rules and live your life, you have to figure out what the rules are with the knowledge that five, 10 years from now, the rules might actually be completely different. Yeah. That's funny. That's what someone once said to me about getting married. I was, I, I was like, so what is, what's it like being married? And they said, you don't, you don't realize when you start that your partner is going to be a different person every five years. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if they meant it as quite as extremely as it sort of sounds, but, um, but you people, five years is a long time. People five really years is a long time. Yeah. I mean, so his, the, one of the examples he says is you think if he was born a century earlier, if he was born 1825, he would be born into a synagogue. He would marry somebody in that synagogue in that community. Yeah. And his funeral service would have been held in that same place. Yeah. And he says, that's tradition. And as hard as that was for a lot of people, I'm born into a sense of community or ethnic identity. Maybe not even national identities as that maybe is a thing that was more late 19th century than, yeah. you know, I'm from this place. These are the rules. These are my opportunities. I'm going to do what my dad did pretty much. Right. I'm going to marry somebody my parents know. Yeah. You know. Very and different then, world. And then, you know, and if you're a Christian, you know, you basically just go out the side door of the church when you're done and you end up in the plot of ground next to where you were baptized. <laughs> right. And that was the solid world. And he said their first stage of modernity was a sort of solid modernity where there were still rules, but now the world's fast. And he says, now we're living in a state of what he called liquid modernity, which is we are a, we're a constantly flowing stream. And if you have a stable identity and stable sense of yourself, that might be more of a liability than anything because mm. the world could potentially leave you behind. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you think this is the kind of job I'm supposed to have and the economy changes, which I mean, I'm, you know, again, I'm in Western Pennsylvania right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, where there's still thousands of people who are waiting for the, the economy of the 19th century to come back. Yeah. And think that that's where their community, I mean, there's a town east of here called Nantiglow. The mine closed in 1982. And the Post-Gazette, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette did a story talking to those people about like, why, you know, why uh, for that one guy who was president in 2016, 2017, they ran this story. Uh -huh. And people said, well, we're a coal mining community. And he says he's going to bring coal back. Yeah. And literally the mine had been closed for close to 40 years. They were not a coal mining community anymore. <laughs> right. There's something else entirely, but still that history. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that, that that stability that people may be also part of the fragility of things in this life and Zygmunt Bauman is that people look for that stability to overcome. I mean, it's also Eric Fromm, biophilia versus necrophilia. Wait, biophilia versus necrophilia. So yes. loving the biome versus loving death? Yes. Okay. That people who want certainty, people who are obsessed with machines and nostalgia and the world of the past are basically loving dead things. From okay. And that. that his book, The Escape from Freedom, which came out in 36, which was his like, hey, this is Nazis. Uh, this is Nazis and fascists. What they want is that they love, want things that are certain, that are dead. The appeal of them is that they are things... It, nostalgia is the appeal for things that we already know it turned out okay. Because if we're still here, it turned out okay. Okay. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to turn out okay five, ten years from now. So let's hate the fact that life is happening and find ourselves in, you know, nostalgia, find ourselves in, in maybe, you know, mechanized experiences maybe finding ourselves in a worldview that does not allow for ambiguity or change or basically for life to do what it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's fascinating. I can, I see all of the, well, I mean, we, we started talking about this with, with the song I was doing, but like, I, you know, I'm thinking this morning I was driving around and I'm, you know, in the middle of Georgia and I was just on a back road, cruising and uh, it was a guy who refurbished batteries it was a sign that said this is what this person did and i just was thinking that's so that feels really antiquated i don't know what that means um exactly i'm assuming you meant car batteries and stuff like that but you can buy them easily i'm just uh, refurbishing batteries sounds like old he's uh, he sounded like he was probably 70 to me yeah or or like maybe 20, but learned it from his dad or whatever. But there's like, there's a, like a disconnect with the, the current modernity, the liquid modernity we have. It's like, why would you refurbish a battery? I know it sounds great practical on page, but that seems, yeah, like it sounds expensive. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> it expensive. Does. It sounds weird. I mean, I guess maybe does it help, you know, is it sort of a extended recycling thing, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. But. I mean, then, I yeah well and i'm also wearing this star wars hat if you remember yes. so i because there's that that's the constant thing with the the empires and all the other versions of empires and stuff is there, it's like we want order they're always talking about the order and the final order and the first order and it's like they what are you not happy about life just doing what life does yeah because i think it's it is scary i mean it's also when from gets into this whole thing of like thinking about life as a possession rather than mm. an experience mm, interesting and that's where people's real freak out about the passage of time is and no, that in a consumerist that. culture we can own things but we can't own time yeah huh. and we can't necessarily own experiences but you can go to love's truck stop and say i want i want a piece of this yeah so i'm going to buy this lighter that's the love's lighter not the not the plain white bic that's cursed i'm gonna get a love light loves lighter even though i pretty much gave up smoking at that point right 
Right. <laughs> it's just nice to be able to command fire, I guess. I need it. With love. You with command love. Fire yes. With love. <laughs> and, you know, and like the idea of merch and the idea of the exit through the gift shop. And oh, man, that was happening so much. I went, you know, down here in Florida and with my, my good friend who flew down a couple times, it was like, yeah, we're going to go to Orlando and do these big theme parks, which I don't normally go to. But wow, that exit through the gift shop thing. It is real. Yeah. And how do you hold on to that experience? You had this wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, man, this is terrible, but okay. Kevin Spacey was on one of the talk shows and Kevin Spacey is a horrible human being, but he was on one of the talk shows talking about, he was somewhere in Rome and some guy, some American tourist from the Midwest was standing at a site at a Roman site that had been there for, you know, 2000 plus years. And the person had their big handheld video camera. Uh-huh. And it was just narrating, going back and forth, oh, yeah. driving everything to do this home video that is probably unwatchable that you're never going to watch. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? We can all make videos. We can all make our own movies. We can all take a picture of our salad before we eat it. Again, yeah. is that part of that impulse? Yeah. And then what do you do with it once it's out there? I have just, it's funny. You mentioned the the camera taking and the the picture taking. Cause I, my friend who was with me is really big on photos. Half the time. That's what we're doing is he likes to take photos and stuff like he like photographer style, even though he doesn't make a living at it, but he's really loves to get a good photo and edit them later and make them into, into these really, really good things. So having him there with me meant that I didn't, I could ignore that impulse myself mm. because every time um, and like my phone, my camera wasn't as good as his. So it was like, great. You're taking all the photos. If you need a photo of me, you will hand me your camera that yeah. like, you know, or, you know, if he needs a photo of himself. So it was, that's a real, it was a real joy to basically be phoneless all during going through souvenir town. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you should be taking photos, when people think you should or whatever. It was when you saw, I mean, which, you know, when the Kodak Brownie came out, the Kodak Brownie camera, one of its big cultural endorsements was from the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. And it was that, you know, this is a thing that could put the pause on the rapidity of modern life. And that you can record family life. And put a pause and put the pump the brakes on modernity through taking pictures of the Kodak Brownie camera. Huh. That's interesting that they would have an opinion at all about it, but I guess that sort yeah. of makes sense. Yeah. 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 What do you and so are we take so, other hands and everything. Yeah, they got their hands and everything, you know. <laughs> um that going farther, farther back, like this, this Instacart impulse or Instacart, Instagram impulse. Yeah. Which I think when it comes to creative things, it's also weird. You put stuff out. I mean, I had this experience, you know, when I, when I put my book of poems out. Yeah. And you don't know how people are going to react. And you know, no. people how are going to read it. I mean, I, I will say that when I do readings, I hate going to readings where people are like, are those poems about like, cause for me, that's like, okay. Yeah, you didn't you didn't do it. <laughs> if you feel like you got to tell us what it's about. 
Right. And then the poem doesn't work. Yeah. Or you're depriving me of the experience. Yeah. Like, can we ask questions later? Can we ask questions later? <laughs> we ask for explanations later. Yeah. But it's also interesting for me because there were things that I wrote 20 years ago that in order to have a book length poetry manuscript, you got to kind of sneak some poems on the page 60. In my um, editing life, we're putting anthologies together and hopefully no one in one of our anthologies is, but we have the phrase, the page 63 poem. Okay. Which I don't know what's on any of the anthologies I edited on page 63. I'm sure it's a fine enough work, but that if we're like, we can accept this piece or not, somebody will eventually say, I think it's a perfectly fine page 63 poem. Meaning somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Meaning if you, well, meaning if you're going to have a hundred plus page book. Yeah. Something's got to be on page 63. <laughs> right. It's not going to be the thing you lead with. Yeah. It's not the thing you leave people with, but you got to, you got. And so there were some page 63 poems that, I mean, there's maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen in my book that, I wrote 20 years ago and I was like, well, you know what? It'd be nice to just have these gone. Yeah. They're not yeah. in progress anymore. They're in the world. This will make, these poems will make this a full length manuscript. And the number of times that people, including my publisher, when in the best of, of the year and in their like promotion of my book, they chose some of the page 63 poems as the <laughs> ones are like yo check this book out oh nice you that's know cool but that is kind of yeah, cool I mean, that's not where like, you were starting yeah yeah there's What's ones that, that i thought were the bangers yeah that uh, yeah <laughs> i hear you I, i've been doing that with the with the patreon thing with the with the the steady putting out of music uh for a small group of folks um, where I know I can do whatever I want. And then eventually turning, looking back a year later and seeing what I put out there and deciding how to, how to release an album, um, which is basically my model as I, as I go forward. It's very much the same. It's like things that I feel like are page 63 songs or filler or deep tracks or deep cuts or whatever they might say there. Um, I, I still value them. I just don't think they'd be what I would lead with. Yeah. And then you find, I find people love them. I'm like, really? You, Because I guess I loved it when I wrote it. I, yeah. I, in some way, I had to go through that process. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe the song doesn't hold mystery for me anymore, which is part of why. Yeah, why or maybe I for me, it's on. like some of the stuff is like, I think this has a big idea behind it. There's a big yeah. idea. I'm really getting metaphysical in this one, motherfucker, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and then people are like, now I want to hear about, you know, this other thing or this little moment yeah. you had or whatever. I mean, one of my favorite poems, like people say that's the best thing I ever wrote. I wrote literally on a bar napkin in five minutes. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? And people are like, man, that's the best thing you've ever done. <laughs> You're just like, like, I wrote it on a bar napkin. Yeah. As a joke. Ah, uh, see, there you go. <laughs> At least you're not. Do you know? Um, well, this is funny. Do, do you know the song uh, "Parked Out by the Lake" by Dylan Summerwind? No. I'm gonna send it to you. You're gonna love it. It's you're you're gonna love it. Um, but so everybody go check it out. I think it's. I think I've got the title correct. "Parked Out by the Lake," Dylan Summerwind. 
And it's my understanding that this song was written by someone with that maybe has a Nashville career as a legit songwriter and did this thing as a, like a side project and then realized it was catching fire, like in a good mm. way. Like people were, it was like, oh no, people like this thing that I metaphorically did on the bar napkin as a joke. And so, so the reason his name is Dylan Summerwind is because that person doesn't exist. Mm. But, but that he, as soon as it started to get popular, he had the wherewithal to shift gears and put someone else's name on it, his fit, this false name. That's funny. Uh, before it became the song he's known for as the professional songwriter, you know, he wanted to be. Yeah, that, ha <laughs> that happened to a friend of mine that he was in uh, in a city he was in a very serious anarcho-punk political band. And then he had a joke band. And the joke, yeah. one of the joke band was some of the people in the joke band were musicians, but did yeah. not know how to play the instruments they were playing in the joke band. Right, right. And there was a period where he realized he was like walking somewhere through Seattle and going, shit, I think people are more into the joke band than this band that I'm very careful about and very have invested so much effort in. Yeah. And that like when we book the joke band, people come out. <laughs> yeah. And we don't get fun. to choose. And it's yeah. like, how do you how do you navigate that and not let it just completely fuck you up? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I know it feels like every song should be or every project should really be a completely different entity because I'm going to change who I am every five years. Yeah. And I don't want people to be like, well, I'm not, I'm not at risk of this. I don't have enough fans to, to have this happen, but the kind of thing where people are like, Oh, that, uh, I don't know. It's like Led Zeppelin. They always just do the Zeppelin thing. It was like if they were still around, you, you might still only listen to the to the decade yeah. of work they actually put out. But yeah. well, I mean, you know, think like, about all of those guys. It's like the end of every rock doc. The, the the one that did it the most nakedly was the one on the damned. Yeah, where I never Captain saw that Sensible was just like, I'm 65 years old. I have kids. There's no other way I'm going to make money. I'm going right. to play these songs with these people. Yeah, they all hate each other. They don't care. <laughs> It's yeah. miserable, but what else are you going to do? Right. And you almost right. become maybe a prisoner of that thing. Like that for me is like, is that the thing about Rivers Cuomo and Weezer? That's my Weezer theory. If like he was Weezer just in, if he was just decided I'm going to be in this other band, I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to call it something else. Billy Corgan tried it with Smashing Pumpkins. He tried solo. He tried Zwan. He tried. It's like, nope. I mean, I mean, it's the Allen Ginsberg wrote that poem, right? I'm a prisoner of Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> it's also this question of like, if you make that thing, yeah. everything you will ever, every, every review of every 90s Frank Black, 90s and early aughts Frank Black solo record was, yeah, but it's not the Pixies. Not the Pixies. It's yeah. Not, it's a good record, but it's not the Pixies again. Yeah. Joey Santiago plays on this record. Maybe he should be with those other two people who are in the Pixies. And then and then made a Pixies record 
made several Pixies records, and they're like, yeah, but it's not Doolittle Pixies, you know? <laughs> right, 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 right. It's not Doolittle. He didn't make Doolittle again. He made, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's been 30 years by that point, or 20, or whatever he happened to be. There's no way you're going to make this Doolittle again. Yeah. I know, but critics critics suck, but fan, but really the critics are, in a way, channeling what some what a good what a fan might what a like. good deal with the fan base is yeah you know i mean i saw oh god this experience um michael penn now if you're a fan the fan of michael penn or into michael penn not into no but i know a couple of his tunes couple of tunes i really got into i had heard he had the, he put out this record called mp4 okay which is one of the most amazing sort of songwriter driven records I've ever heard. I'm addicted to it. I mean, like once a year it comes around again, like I'll wake up and a song will be playing in my head and I'm like, Oh, it's time for MP4 again. It's such an amazing record. And I went to see him at a small venue in Pittsburgh called club cafe and it sold out. And I forgot about the song he had in 1980. He had one hit. He had a song called no myth. Yeah. I think that's the one I know. Romeo in black jeans. Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. the Heathcliff it's no myth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I forgot. I just like space because like, fuck, MP4 is so good. <laughs> he's coming. He's going to play those. And he did. He played the, all the songs I wanted to hear. Nice. And I realized, and even though like Danelle was with me and was like, yeah, you don't remember he had that song, like the one that was his hit. It was on MTV for like a month, twice an hour. You don't remember this. (laughs) And it got to the point I realized everybody else in there was there for one song. That Romeo No Myth song. Yeah. To the point where some drunk lady was like, just he was tuning. And also like Michael Penn is like this really intense guy. He's like his brother, both of his Uh brothers, I guess. Where, I mean, he would like literally just tune 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 <laughs> put his ear right on the acoustic guitar to tune yeah like yeah. Mm, no it's not mm. and so there were these long breaks between everything and some <laughs> drunk right. lady he was wearing blue jeans uh-huh. and she goes this song is romeo in black jeans and he's wearing blue jeans that's weird and he just <laughs> stopped and was like lady if I wrote a song with the line Romeo in black jeans and then I only wore black jeans, that would be really weird, wouldn't it? I'm calling <laughs> myself Romeo. That's stalkerish, lady. <laughs> but we're getting to the end of the night. Yeah. And somebody finally, between one of the long breaks, whistled the song. Yeah. Whistled no myth. And he goes, that's subtle. And then just completely joylessly played it and was gone. That, that was, was it. it. That oh was the end God. of it. It's like, oh, all right, I'm going to do this. I don't know if you've ever well, seen the, the Radiohead documentary, Meeting People is Easy, where Tom York just has the mic out in Philadelphia and everyone's singing to Creep. Creep. And he's just like, okay, they're doing it. I don't have to. I'll, I'll let them sing it. I'll let them do it. Yeah. You know, to be become the prisoner of the thing. Yeah. Because people own your stuff once they've invested in it. They have an ownership of it. Yeah. And, you know, not not economic necessarily, but um, but yeah, they, they own it. And so they, they feel a connection with it. It's theirs. And you're 
And unfortunately, you become part of that product that they own because you were the person who made the product. So it's it's a it's a strange place to be. I thank thank you that I don't have to really deal with that. Um, <laughs> but because I like I don't really want to be famous. I've always often said I want to be um, my version of famous would be to be like the bass player for Radiohead. I feel like no one knows what that guy looks like. Unless you're crazy about Radiohead, maybe you know them, but I like them a lot. I've owned three or four of their records. I don't know what any of them look like except Tom York. So I want to be that guy because, you know, know, fifth guy over in Wilco or some working band that just keeps going. And, you know. Well, you know, one of our our PhD students uh, had a summer uh summer thing where they were in oxford for the summer studying and there was a bar that he liked to go to and that tom york liked to go to yeah and literally the one night he turned he walked into the bar and there was somebody meeting him at the door and was like you will not talk to tom york (laughs) the the, the, the bouncer the bouncer and he was like what the fuck do you mean (laughs) <laughs> right and he's like you're not talking to tom york you're leaving tom york alone okay have a nice time <laughs> but leave tom york alone yeah and immediately he was like where the hell's tom york and like he was <laughs> right. sitting at the end of the bar with like a hat down and a beer yeah just you know being out and he wouldn't have even noticed he said that's the thing he's like the irony of it i would not have like had any desire to talk to tom york or recognize that tom york was in the bar yeah but this super aggressive you will not talk to tom york (laughs) my biggest get in all of my music making my biggest achievement um was being um being at in uh new hope pennsylvania and playing a bar called john john's or something like that something like john's place or i I, i've been there a few times i think i've seen a band play there before i was there to play um and i set up for next to nobody and and played my one-man band gig and did a good job but no one cared you know it was like five people in the room and didn't seem like anyone cared. So I just did my a valiant effort and was was like, great. I turned in another show, no, no skin off my back, really happy to have done it. Um, and then as I'm packing up, this guy came up to me and, and like came right up on the stage and hung out and sat down on like an amp or something that was there and said, and, and was like, Hey man, that was really, it was really good. And I was like, great. And he looked familiar and uh, eventually he was basically like, I saw you setting up all your junk. And I thought, oh, this is going to be some bullshit right here. <laughs> this is what he, this is what he told me. It was like, I was like, I saw you setting up and I was like, oh, come on, this is going to suck. And he said, no, but you're really legit. You know what you're doing there. You're like, good work. Uh, I, I thought it was great. And he turned out to be uh, one of the weens, which is a huge band for me. Now I can, I'm always forget. I always get confused between who's Gene and who's Dean. Yes. Um, name but his name is mickey whichever one's actual name is mickey um and i just and i can see him in my head i just don't know who does what and 
I was like, oh my God, that is such a huge compliment coming from him. Wow. Um, just top notch for me. So that's my biggest get that will probably ever give her. See, I've had, had this nice experience both times that I've done something. I've won, I've gone all city. <laughs> I was the poet of the month or poet of the week in February yeah. of last year. Nice. And I had a review in the Post Gazette of my book. Hot dog. I found out from other people. <laughs> I found out from yeah. friends who were congratulating me. That's awesome. Like, oh, dude, your poem is so good. And you're like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Did that come out today? <laughs> you know, and the same thing. I was at an event and I was like, somebody's like, man, that write up of you about you in the post Gazette is so good. Congratulations. Nice. And I was like, what write up in the post? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember yeah. I gave gave the guy who wrote it a review copy and he said maybe the post gazette he's going to shop it around to a couple places yeah and of course actually the best part is because you know they're a struggling newspaper like everybody else and trying to figure out the digital platform thing so i ended up uh, i was paywalled out i had used my five free articles <laughs> that month so you couldn't even read your own article. You had to, so I had to go into incognito mode and do all this like browser. Screenshot it, friend of mine, and send it my way. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty much what I had to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was a subscriber, so he was able to gift it to me. Oh, nice. So nice. I was able to read my own review, but it was like, <laughs> this, is, this is what it's like to be famous. People know about you. You don't know them or, you know, whatever. Oh. Random strangers. You know. I feel bad. I feel bad for people walking down the street that have to have to deal with yeah. famosity. It just I'm ready doesn't... for it. I think I'm ready to be famous. Yeah, I'm ready. See, not me. I th I think I've I think from the beginning I've been because in in theater, you know, like when I've when I've yeah I, yeah I, I was actually a little surprised to hear you say that, but um, I but I like in doing theater work. I'm never the, I'm never the leading man, but I'm in I'm on stage. And so yeah. sometimes people people near the town I've just performed in will say, like, hey, I saw you. Didn't I see you in that thing? Or I saw you. In, that was really great. We loved you. And like, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. But that's all. Those are local people who saw something down the road. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I, funny you should yeah. say that when you were here for Indecent. Uh huh. We were walking, me and Danelle were walking through the cultural district. Uh huh. And we bumped into our neighbor was waiting for our former neighbor who also left that neighborhood was waiting for her Uber. Okay. And she was in tears. Oh, that's a beautiful show. It is a beautiful show. And she was in tears. Like, oh my God, this thing happened. And we were like, oh, hey, kid, how are you? And she's like, I just got out of indecent. And I was like, and I told the story and she's like, yeah. I think I remembered hearing that through the wall. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy played my living room. The accordion player played my living room <laughs> one night. She's like, I remember that. I thought I heard that. Nice. And so that was, yeah, I, was like, oh, I know that. And so I got your reflected glories. Dude, that guy slept at my house. <laughs> you were moved but that dude slept in my house ah uh, yeah that's pretty cool which was near your house so you get another you get another, another degree of, of fame from that i like those kind of fame. like where th that person may not remember what i look like 
but they they remember that whoever did that thing did a good job i like that i'll take that yeah. all day like I, I my being lauded for things that i did well i'm okay yeah. with i just don't really want my name and face attached to them no. i kind but of i think you know not, the small thing i think one of the things that i found so i i don't know if it's still the case because pandemic and then people got weird and but you know there was a brief moment when pittsburgh hardcore was a thing yeah and people were paying attention not okay. in pittsburgh actually maybe even more outside of pittsburgh than inside of pittsburgh we're paying yeah. attention to pittsburgh bands and i would go when i would go to for conferences or whatever i would just find the punk record store and talk to the person who worked there and like what's the local thing yeah what are you listening to what are the bands in this town and I even had this experience at uh, Celebrated Summer in Baltimore, where the guy was like, yeah, nothing really is my band. But, you know, if you really want to get into a local scene, you should check out Pittsburgh and then pull <laughs> all these Pittsburgh seven inches before I could say, yeah, I, they're my friends. I know these people. I go right. see them for five dollars on a regular basis. And then it immediately became, oh, do you know? <laughs> Oh, are you yeah. friends with? Holy crap. What's he like? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, yeah, they're just people. I mean, and it's weird. Yeah. Like, you know, so I do have a friend, the friend I'm book coaching had this, the experience of where he went from being the guy who would, he had a 96 Chevy Cavalier. He would drive to a city in Alabama, play a coffee shop with no, like no hotel, no guarantee didn't know where he was sleeping that night and would go and make friends with people. Yeah. And see if he could get a couch, see if he can get $50, see if he could sell two t-shirts. Yeah. And it would be a successful event. And he got signed to an indie label and it was very hard for him because he went from being like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to play these confessional folk punk songs and then I'm going to go stand behind the merch table. If anybody wants to talk to me, I'm going to talk them up and maybe I can sell a t-shirt or a CDR that I burned or whatever. Yeah. He went from being that guy to when he started opening for a famous Pittsburgh punk band and was on their label. And this summer, his band is opening for My Chemical Romance and their arena tour. Oh. He went from being, though, I mean, he'd be standing in the venue, just checking out the bands or whatever, just being a punk like everybody else. Yeah. You know, and just like, I want to hear this band that's opening and I want to, then I got to watch because I'm selling t-shirts and people would literally be like, oh my God, oh my God, that's him over there. Dude. Yeah. Dude, dude. And I mean, they'd be standing, he said like people would be standing five, 10 feet away from him. Yeah. And he would just be like, do I turn around? Do I just be like, hi, I'm, I'm Derek. How you yeah. doing? <laughs> you know? Um, and he said that then also is once you get to that place, you realize that there's that song that you wrote that you're sick of playing. And instead of going, I'm going to this place where no one knows me, I'm going to make some friends to now suddenly this person paid $15. Yeah. They want this experience with me. They want the experience that they had in their bedroom, in their earbuds with me. And it was, he said that was 
that was a moment where he, the world was different. And he, for a second there was like, I'm quitting music. Yeah. Where he's yeah, like, I'm just going to go make pizzas. <laughs> he's like, I was, a, you know, he did kitchens before. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to making pizza. I feel like if you're going to make it, if you're going to have that one hit, I was sort of said, I think I said something like this before, but is you want to have, have a lot of material already. Yeah. Because, you know, if you, if you make it right away, sometimes that works for bands and they're happy about that. But, um, but I feel like if you have a ton of material, like people who have it made on stage, whether you like them or not, are people like, uh, well, like, you know, like Johnny Cash had a million hits yeah. and could play a million things, but like Bruce Springsteen can play for hours on end. And like, that's great because he doesn't have to play only the hits. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if I had, if I was a one hit wonder, like a Michael Penn, then not that he's not that it was much of a hit, but you know, but, but it was still his hit. Like that's yeah. the one people and, know and I paid $15 to hear this song. And yeah. we're, we're now an hour into this thing. We haven't heard the song yet. Yeah. Oh my God. The pressure. Oh, the freaking, I forgot who it was. It was somebody MTV, whether it was 120 minutes or MTV news did a thing, you know, back when the, Lollapalooza and Lollapalooza like thing was uh-huh. and it was like when do you play the radio hit yeah and I think it actually it might have been the dude from Everclear was just like well, we just play it first yeah yeah that's a we good play it first we get it over with and then we play our set yeah yeah that's like um I saw Lionel Richie once play at at some for some fireworks on July 4th at an outdoor show and he he constantly throughout the evening kept saying we're going to party all night long and was was really digging into that as just a teaser the whole time because they were going to play it last and then the rain came and he never played it oh no <laughs> it, it was horrible i was like poor lionel well, richie you know he's the one that this echoes in my mind whenever i look at like the rock on the range lineup in columbus as yeah is the one that sinatra said to him Kid, if you got one song they want to hear, they got a you got a career. Nice. And the advantage to you is you wrote the song. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And there's how many people had, I mean, Oleander is still touring. Right, right. And that song wasn't even a hit, but it got played on the radio a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. If you got one, I could I could use one. I could do a one hit. Yeah, I'd be yeah. happy to do a one hit wonder. Well, is it also having a lot of songs? Is it also having a sense of who you are? And isn't this what messes up people who get famous at like 22? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because that's the thing. It's like I wrote poems that there's poems in my books that I wrote when I was 22. Yeah. That I published when I was 43. It's so much safer. <laughs> right, right, right. I know who <laughs> I am now. I went yes. through all the things. If people were just like, "Man, that thing that you did—that's that's me, man. That's it." Yeah, you I know, know. it's just like, yeah, yeah, that was me at twenty-two. You know, is that also part of the? And that's the thing, like someone like Michael Penn, who just continues to write interesting songs and takes the craft. Well, the one that really messes me up is Amy Mann, his wife. I didn't know they were married. They were married. They're married. Uh-huh. And voices carries the first song she wrote. That is such a good song. I heard it on the radio the other day. 
That song blows my mind. And for me, you know, she's someone who very much takes craft very, 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 very seriously. Craft and theory and thinking about it. And there's part of me, there's this narrative in my head that's probably, this is not true, but imagine you're that person and the first song you wrote is the best song you wrote. Right. right. And then you spend now 30 years, 35 years chasing that dragon. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, will she ever, I mean, she's written some wonderful songs and some wonderful albums, but I don't know if any of them her voices carry. <laughs> Luckily for her, see, now here's the thing. L- Luckily for her, she wasn't the name of the band. Yeah. Like, like people know it's Amy Mann, but Till Tuesday is the one who had that hit. So theoretically, she could, Till Tuesday could still be playing somewhere playing that hit and Amy Mann could still be somewhere playing the hit. Unfortunately, the cat's out of the bag, but, um, <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, there's like a, there's a little bit of a thing there. Yeah. I mean, those fucking songwriters that write great songs like, uh, Brian Wilson wrote surfer girl as his first song. First song he ever wrote was surfer girl, which is a lovely song. It's just lovely. I think Johnny Cash's first tune was, um, was like one of his early hits, you know, like, uh, I can't even think of him, but you know, yeah, Bert Yansk, Needle of Death. Yeah. He wrote that oh. when he was 18. That was one of the first songs he wrote. How do you, how do these people, I mean, I know how they do it. They're just talented and it came out, but, yeah. but you know, like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's some hard stuff to surpass or, or even live with as you get older and older. Like, yeah. I wrote, I wrote fucking, that that'll be the day i can do anything i'm buddy holly and then you die in a plane crash you know like i don't know i don't know you just don't know i mean yeah i mean that's that's the thing i think that's what's so interesting and i think to and we're over an hour into this conversation we should probably get to the top five bottom five pretty soon okay but thinking back to that first podcast i've been thinking about this the whole time and when i it first you know occurred to me in th- at Thanksgiving, I'm like, oh, I better get Spiff back, <laughs> you know, to do this. And then it was like two weeks to email you. And then I got busy. We'd agree. Anyway, but thank you for doing yeah. this and being here. And thank My you pleasure. for being the first guest, because you were props, perhaps out of all the people I know, the best possible first guest. Yes, I'll take it. Like, I would not have done the first episode, I think, if it wasn't for you. Excellent. Because like we remember that we went to a Wheeling Nailers game. Oh, yeah, that was fun. It was fun. We came home. Do you still have the hat? Speaking of hats, you still have that hat. I think I lost that hat. Oh, I was bummed about it. What it used to be my extra hat in my van. I mean, in my in my golf at that point. My and I was like, I'm going to keep this in the golf and I'll always have an extra hat because I know I love a hat. And no, it went away. I think I might have lent it to someone and they kept it at the end of the night. It was one of those kind of anyway anyway <laughs> we sat in my living room in my old house that you were at and you played and you were just like, all right let's do this yeah and if you hadn't said okay let's just do this right now i don't know if i would have ever done it congrats because, man. I mean, yeah because i, I mean, think I mean, you have that sense of like well let's just do this thing yeah and see how it turns out and it's probably gonna be okay it's probably gonna be okay you know that thing about uh like a perfection kills art or whatever. I, yeah. I was a big 
uh, victim of that growing up. I Same. I was always like, no, I'll I'll eventually release songs when I am a good at writing and I and when I have a band that knows how to play all the stuff I want to do with a band and I, pie in the sky ideas and just never doing it. It took yeah. it took uh, me and our mutual friend Chris Murphy to be at a gig watching another band play badly but have a ton of fun with all of their friends watching them. We were like, wait a second, why aren't we doing this? Yeah. And then I think within a month we were both actually doing it because we were like, this is just stupid. We should be having yeah. this much fun and yeah. letting ourselves be bad. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. so congrats yeah. for letting yourself grow and getting started and all that stuff. I'm trying to keep that in trying to keep that attitude for myself and remind myself of that often. Yes. There's no point in holding back, you know. So let's talk about all the things you're doing. So you have the musical Patreon. Yep, I have that. I'll Patreon. have the link to that. Awesome. Where you release a song a month, but then also a video. Sort of describing the song, the song in the process. Yeah. yeah. You're doing the musical theater thing. Uh, yeah, still do that. Just did Buddy Holly's story. Looks like I'm going to be playing bass for a kind of a Jerry Lee Lewis tribute coming up doing a couple shows random places but that's kind of cool. where i'm at right now you were also working on doing radio dramas or radio yeah baby anyone that knows me and hangs out with me regularly knows that i love old radio shows yesterday driving i listened to four episodes of dragnet i'm up to like the year 1954 or so Wow. Uh, and it's great. It's great, man. I, I don't know what it is about these shows. I fell asleep listening to Fibber McGee and Molly last night. I've, I'm a huge fan of the Jack Benny show. I've, I've done, gone through all the sci-fi episodes. Um, but yeah, man, I just love the audio narratives. They're mm. great. They, I like because, well, I, you know, so I did this. I have two. You can find them on YouTube, anybody who's listening. But I have two Halloween stories with a young author from Kentucky where I grew up. He's the kid of some friends of mine. And he's like 10 and 11 years old for each of these stories. And in the first one, he there's all these cars just keep blowing up like they're all over the place because he's into cars and he's into writing and he's 10. Um, and the other one is uh, all of these skeletons chasing them around the school. So they're really worth checking out. I was just happy to produce them and lend lend my editing stuff. But you hear his voice reading the stories or tell or being a character in the stories. Anyway, they're a ton of fun. And they the thing about the skeletons and the cars, I can see them easily in my head. I don't and I feel like everyone relates to it, finds yeah. that that theater of the mind thing where you're telling the story, but cost wise, you just find you've found something that sounds like an explosion and that's it. You don't, you don't have to buy a car and blow buy, it up and blow it up and catch it on film. Well, <laughs> but I think also is that then if you're talking about like the, the car, is it that again, you for radio dramas, the audience has to, fill it in has to make it has to be yeah. co-creators yeah yeah that is interesting to me which is different from you know a complete lack of selective ambiguity yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to have links to all of these things. Sweet. So there's going to be the YouTube, the Patreon. Oh, yeah. And just just uh, so if Van Camp. Spiffamol Industries Radio Hour. S-P-I-F-F-E-M-O-L. Spiffamol Industries Radio Hour is the live in Brooklyn regular event that I'm trying to create. So if anybody finds themselves in, in Brooklyn or New York, anywhere, keep your eyes out for the Spiffamol Industries Radio Hour. Because um, that's basically what I developed recently and performed with some friends. I was lucky enough to get a grant. You know, New York was was like, thank you artists for being active during the pandemic. Would you like some more money? <laughs> and, and it was a lottery and I won it. So I got like nine friends together and we wrote shows and there was a adventures of captain spiff who's a a a uh like a, a in a spaceship and then there was a an episode part of it it all happened over roughly an hour but um spiffamall industries had a new line of uh products that help you get rid of unwanted guests and then there was a uh there was a tv show where wildlife on earth were competing doing burlesque in order to raise money to try to fix their habitats on earth that's amazing it, it was far enough in the future and you didn't again you didn't have to see it so the idea of a penguin with long legs and hair extensions is just right there in your brain but oh man for me to have to put that together visually and show someone what i was thinking about it's way more fun to just be like it's a penguin wearing stockings and no and no long legs with hair extensions they look great yes. <laughs> that's amazing it's fun so i'll try to have links to all this but now Thanks, it man. is time for the bottom five. Oh, let's do it a series of questions not related to our main topic they're of a surrealistic surrealistic and or philosophical nature <laughs> you ready i'll try to be all right question one name a film world you would like to visit or live in permanently if you could gumby your way into a dvd box wow um the second half of joe's joe and the volcano joe versus the volcano oh. not, not not the bland office part at the beginning but when he's like in paradise even though he thinks he's going to die uh joe versus the volcano it just i just think it was fun okay that's <laughs> a great one um let's see here let's say probably asked that one already number two it's a question i think I invented later if we're living in a dystopian future and the only books to survive would be those bound in human skin oh my god you, and what book would you donate your skin for and the Bible, the Quran, and the complete works of Shakespeare already taken. Wow. Post-apocalyptic. I'm just. I'm not going to edit my answers. I'll try to stay the first things out. So post-apocalyptic, lending your skin for feeling like it's worth thinking. And about if you skin. don't, it maybe doesn't survive. Right. In I human say, history, forward. I'm going to say Station Eleven. Did you ever read that one? No. It's. It's basically post-apocalyptic story, but it happens to be about creating art in the apocalypse. 
which is way more interesting than any other version of apocalyptic stuff I can think of. And Mm -hmm. apparently they just made a a TV show out of it. It probably sucks, but the book was really nice. Cool. Cool. Question three. Speaking of the apocalypse or not, or or (laughs) biophilia versus necrophilia, maybe. Okay. If you had to choose, would you rather live 100 years in the past or 100 years into the future? Oh, God. I'm so scared of global warming. I think it would have to be the past. I'm just so worried about what it's going to, what, what's going to happen by the time we're, we're dying, assuming we live to be near a hundred, like we should. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kind of like, God damn it. Is it going to suck? Is it going to suck so bad? Of course. So my instinct is to say a hundred years ago, but, um, but actually if everything bad happens 50 years from now, or 30, perhaps a hundred years from now will be nice. You know, it's yeah, like maybe we we'll just, get on the other side of it. And yeah, maybe, maybe it'll just be like, yeah, ever, that's before everything died. And now, now there's a, like, now we all live underground and have, and it's, and it's nice. And we, we, we don't do any of that bullshit anymore. We have little lovely communities, but we still kept the internet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like maybe. All right. <laughs> Question four. What is your <laughs> least favorite month? Oh, God. My least favorite month. Um, Only 12 to choose from. That's a, that's a lot. Uh, you know, I think it might be. I have had the experience of thinking April was the worst because it never stopped raining. Mm. And that, that was pretty rough. My instinct is to be more like the month we're in now, January, because it's so cold. Yeah. Um, but April was only was the was the only month I've ever actively hated. Mm. <laughs> Question five. You're almost through this. Oh my god. Name mm. a food you wished you liked but don't. Natto, the um, the Japanese fermented soybean dish. Oh. Um, I think it would be a point of pride to like that stuff because I think even like 50% of Japanese don't like it. <laughs> it's Ooh. one of those, one of those, but it's like, you know, do you like Scrapple or not or whatever it is? It's a bit oh, of a, so a okay. Um, but Natto would is disgusting and hard to even look at for me. But if I could eat it, then I'd be like the coolest kid at the table. And everybody else would be like, how do you eat that crap? And I'd be like, oh, you don't love it? (laughs) That's amazing. That's great. (laughs) And on that note, I think that's about it. Okay. Our next episode will eventually happen, and it'll be about something. We always do the unplanned hiatus. Again, it took close. Well, it took nine years. No, it took 10 years. To get yeah. to, to 101 episodes. So we're, this ain't regular, folks. If we'll I wanted to be again. famous as a podcaster, I'd be <laughs> dropping new content every week. But life gets going. Our whole we'll page. We'll do this again in nine, nine more years. We'll do yeah. 202. Yes. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> um, our homepage where you can find new and old episodes is going to die podcast.com. I just repaid for the hosting. So it's going to be around for a while longer. We're also an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google play podcast, Stitcher, tune in podcast addict and Mixcloud. When I remember, which is never, but there are episodes of this podcast on Mixcloud. follow us on Twitter at, at going to die podcast. And we're all going to die is still on Facebook. 
Special thanks to Andrew Fox for our lovely theme music. Thank you again, Spiff. You're welcome. So much for being the alpha and at this moment, the omega. <laughs> but not the Omicron. Oh, yeah, there you go. Topical humor. <laughs> Later, mates. Ha, 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 ha.